Good morning, family. My name is Ben. I'm one of the leaders here, but most importantly, I'm, ben, I'm one who has been pursued and is being pursued by God. And uh, I'm really glad to be here. I'm really thankful for Josiah. Josiah recently transitioned to another church family in Gig Harbor, but he very kindly came back and led worship today because we were very short on music leaders. And he did it on his birthday. Today's his birthday. So super thankful for you, brother. Thank you for serving. Well, we were going to do that, but he'd have to lead it. And he said if I did that, he'd lead it in Spanish. So we won't. <laughs> but happy birthday and thank you, brother, for being here. Uh, we are in Daniel chapter 4. and We're going to get there in a few minutes this morning. We are continuing a, a season in the book of Daniel that we've called Beautiful Resistance. We've borrowed that title from John Tyson's book. And he's been really helpful as we prepared for this series. And just a reminder of why we're calling it Beautiful Resistance. If you throw up that first slide, Andre... This story is set in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar has conquered many nations around him to build the Babylonian Empire, and one of those is the nation of Israel, and he took captive into exile Daniel and his three friends and hundreds of others in an effort to assimilate them into Babylonian culture and to ensure the preservation of his empire. And so Daniel and his three friends are given this letter by the prophet Jeremiah. Remember that from the first teaching. And that letter says, don't separate from Babylon. Don't cloister yourselves and live away from the people, but live among them, but be faithful to God, God in the midst of them and pray for their flourishing. So neither separate nor assimilate, but be a beautiful resistance in Babylon. And in Daniel uh, chapter 4, which we're going to get to in a moment, we're going to see another example of beautiful resistance. And we're gonna, I'm going to start this morning not by talking about the culture of ancient Babylon, but by talking about the culture of our Babylon, the culture of America, and introduce you to a phrase maybe that's new to you, but the concept is probably not. And the phrase is brand Jesus. Brand Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. A couple weeks ago I mentioned David Kinneman, who's the director of Barna in his recent book, Faith for Exiles. He says, we, the church, has been complicit in presenting a Jesus to compete at the same level as other affiliations and affinities. Jesus is your cool BFF, your partner in adventure, who wants you to be tagged in your selfies and help you live your best life. And he can be co-branded with just about anything. Being a Christian is not meaningful, meaningfully different from participating in the branded culture of our times. It is a transaction equivalent to following a band on Instagram, attending concerts, and wearing the swag. Jesus is just one more brand competing for our loyalty. And this trend in the church is just a mere reflection of our culture where independence and self-determination and being self-made men and women are hailed as virtues. And all around us, we hear the language of self-determination. You do you. Follow your heart. 
If it feels true, it is. Live your truth. And our American moral code teaches us that I as an individual am the center of my moral universe. So I get to choose, well, everything. My identity, my authority, my future, who or what I worship. For all intents and purposes, I am God. Now, before we fall into the trap of thinking that that is a problem out there, that is not just a problem out there, that is a problem in here. Every one of us wakes up with a temptation to co-opt Jesus as an assistant to our lives, to co-opt Jesus into our story, to adopt Jesus in one way or another as a brand, to repackage Jesus with our desires, with our theology, with our ambitions, and then worship the repackaged version that we have created. And because we swim in a culture that is saturated with self-determination, and because we have that tendency in our own hearts, Daniel 4 is a really important chapter for us today. Because what we see in Daniel 1 through 3, as we get this snapshot into the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, is a man that is fascinated with and impressed with brand Yahweh. Yahweh is the Old Testament word for Lord, if you're not familiar with the Bible. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with Yahweh. He, he thinks this God is a brand that he'd like to have as one of his brands. In chapter 1, he sees these men, Daniel and his three friends, and how they stand up to the rules that they've been given to eat the king's meat and wine, and yet they're, they prosper, and they're the, they're the best men in the kingdom. And so he gets this taste of, oh, what's this about? These followers of Yahweh, there's something about them. And then in chapter 2, he has that dream of the idol, of the statue, with all the different metals that's broken down by the rock, cut out not without human hands. And Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion to that is, wow, God really is amazing. And he sends out that decree. Do you remember that? If, if anyone says anything against the God of Israel, let them be cut in pieces. He's not there yet, right? He doesn't quite understand God. God is just a brand. God is one of the many gods that Nebuchadnezzar puts on his shelf with his other Babylonian Gods, And we know that's true because look at chapter 3, right? We looked at that last week. Nebuchadnezzar sets up a statue of himself. He's still the center of his kingdom. And he calls everyone to worship him and by extension all of the Babylonian gods. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. They're cast into the fire. They come out without being burnt at all. And Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion is this Yahweh is amazing. And yet still, Nebuchadnezzar has added God to his list of other things that he worships, especially himself. And chapter 4 is all about how God keeps pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. God is a pursuing God. And so I want to read this morning, chapter 4, the whole thing, okay? So buckle up. We're going to read all of Daniel chapter 4. 
because it's really important we get the whole story before we talk about it. And as we read it, I'll put this slide up, I'd like you to look for the purpose of the dream. The purpose of the dream. It occurs four times in this chapter. So listen for it. What is the purpose of the dream? And God's really kind to us to give us a really explicit reason for this chapter being in the Bible. Four times he tells us what it's about. So let's read together Daniel chapter 4. If you want to flip open to that or pull up your, your Bible app. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, so he's writing a letter, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his Wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Things were good at home. Things were good at work. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, you'd think he would have learned, right? Finally, Daniel came into my presence. Maybe ask Daniel first. And I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed, and the visions I saw while lying in the bed, I looked. And there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Some translations say seven years. It's just seven periods of time. So seven days, seven weeks, seven years. Enough to accomplish the purpose is the point. This decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth 
and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof, he had a big roof, of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. 
No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen. Did you hear the purpose four times? In verse 17 is the first time it's repeated again in 25, 26, 32. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, Yahweh is not a brand that you add to your life. He is the majestic, sovereign king over all the earth. So I have two simple things I want to do this morning. I want us to see, number one, our hearts recaptured by the majesty of God. And then second, I want us to see what does it look like to live a life of response to God's majesty. So first, I want, I want our hearts to be recaptured by the majesty of God. And this is an impossible job for a preacher, right? I mean, I can explain to you the sovereignty and majesty of God. I can try to use new words for old truths that we know. I can try to give you stories and illustrations. But at the end of the day, I cannot recapture your hearts. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So as we enter into this, will you pray? God, recapture my heart with how majestic and how great you are. And so there's two things about God's sovereignty that Neb realizes that move him from brand Yahweh to Yahweh is everything. Number one, he sees the absolute and authoritative sovereignty of God. I know there's two things, I rolled them into one because they're really connected. Okay, God's sovereignty is absolute and authoritative. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean that God has control over everyone and he has authority control over everything, and he has authority over everyone. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's dream begins with this tree, right? This tree is enormous. It's strong. Its top touches the sky. It, it's visible to every part of the earth. It provides food for everyone. And there's, there's no coincidence that in the Bible, trees are a symbol of God's life and provision. And if we didn't have the rest of the dream, we would think this tree is talking about God. It's a very God-like tree. But then Nebuchadnezzar discovers that there is someone more powerful than this magnificently global tree. And I think it's, it's kind of humorous that in the dream, God himself does not come down to tell, to say that the tree should be cut down. He sends an angel, a messenger. It's kind of like Hey, on your lunch break, could you go tell them to cut down that tree? Could you go tell them to dismantle that kingdom? That's how much power God has. He doesn't come himself. He sends a messenger, and he invests that messenger with the power to say, cut down this massive tree symbolizing Nebuchadnezzar's reign. 
Compared to the absolute sovereign power of the creator of the universe, this tree is nothing. To, to the God who built our solar system with his fingers, a kingdom is like Lego that can be dismantled. God is absolute in his authority. And perhaps no one in the Bible says this better than Nebuchadnezzar himself. As he transitions out of beast mode at the end of the chapter, in verse 35, this is his declaration. He said, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he please, as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So if, if all the hosts of heaven conspired together with every person on earth and said, let's take on God, let's arm wrestle God, it would be as, as if nothing were resisting God's hand. Just That's how powerful God is. And, and if, if all the earth conspired together to question what God did and say, God, what did you, like, this was a mistake. It would mean nothing because God does not make mistakes. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar later says, right, right at the end of the chapter. He says, he says, everything he does is right and all his ways are just. God's sovereignty is absolute and authoritative, but it's not that he's a sovereign dictator without care. The reason he can't be questioned is because what he does is right. What he does is good. We sang this morning, only God does what is good, always does what is good and right and perfect. Now, if you feel the tension that that truth about God creates, you're not alone. Every one of us feel this tension. How can God be absolutely sovereign and there still exists human responsibility and sin and suffering. Like, how does that work? And so I'm going to take a little parenthesis here. I'm not going to solve that tension for you, but I hope I can help you appreciate the tension. We talk about God's sovereignty. There's two things that we know for sure. If you put this slide up, yeah, good. God is completely sovereign. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. And... Humans are responsible. God does not cause sin or sin himself. This area in the middle, if you go to the next slide, Andre, this area in the middle, that is where theologians and philosophers for years have wrestled with how do we make these two things work together? And a lot of the things that we've learned have been really helpful from theologians and philosophers about how these things interact, and some are not so helpful. But what, they, what many come to the conclusion of, and it's a right conclusion, is that there is a mystery in this middle part that it is impossible for us to fully understand and fully comprehend. And so whatever your th theology about the sovereignty of God, if, if it somehow impugns God's complete sovereignty or if it somehow dismisses human responsibility, then there's something amiss with it. But we all come to this conclusion, should come to this conclusion as we approach this doctrine that there's a mystery. And here's where the appreciation comes in because every single doctrine we believe has mystery, right? How is it that God, Jesus could be fully God and fully man? 
It's mind-blowing. How is it that the Trinity, three distinct persons, one essence, how does that work? We, we believe it. We believe that's what God's word says. There's no contradiction in the mind of God, but there is a mystery in it for us. And here's why I want you to appreciate that. If we had a God that we could completely understand, he would not be worth worshiping. Right? If, if a creation could completely understand their creator, then that means the creator is not as great and as big as he says he is. But we have a magnificently majestic and big God, which means there are things about him we will not understand. And yet we can hold to be true. And so King Nebuchadnezzar discovers one of the great mysteries that should humble us and move us to awe. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now, the second truth about God's sovereignty that's really important. It's not just absolute and authoritative. It is good and gracious. God's sovereignty is good and gracious. Nebuchadnezzar declared that God always does what is right and just. But let me show you what that looks like in the chapter. We see God's grace right away. Daniel interprets the dream and he tells Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to repent. And whatever God decrees, he also decrees that when people repent, he responds in grace. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar a whole year. We don't know what's happening in that year, but he gives Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to respond to this message that he's been given. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent because a year later he's, he's looking at his kingdom and he says, look at the great Babylon that I have built. Despite all the dreams, all the hints, Nebuchadnezzar still thinks that what he has is something that he has built and not received. This is uh, maybe a weird reference. Um, it would be a 13-year-old illustration, but because Avatar's back in the theaters, it's not. But do you remember? I don't know if you remember that scene in Avatar where J Jack is like, he's, he's dropped into Pandora. Uh, Jake, rather, he's dropped into Pan Pandora, and he's facing this hammerhead rhinoceros creature. And he's all like bravado, like, come on, bring it on. I got this thing. And, and the, the, the hammerhead charges him and then stops right in front of him and turns around and runs away. And Jake is like, yeah, see, you, you go, you run. But then Jack doesn't realize, Jake doesn't realize that behind him is this giant thanator that is the, the most fierce beast in the jungle. And that's why the hammerhead ran away. Now, the point of this is not that God's a sovereign beast, right? The point of this is that Nebuchadnezzar is standing thinking, look at all the stuff I did. This is all me. And he doesn't realize that behind him is this sovereign God that has put everything in place. He has permitted Nebuchadnezzar to rule. He can just as easily put down Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as raise it up. And this is not a Nebuchadnezzar problem. It's an us problem. Though we believe that our heart beats because God tells it to, that our lungs breathe in and out because, because God tells them to, we frequently live in the delusion that our abilities, our intelligence, our influence, our ministry, our career 
trajectory, our parenting success can somehow be attributed to us. How many times I've said, hey, look what God's done, when in my heart I'm really, look what I've done, right? And these words are barely out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, and a second, the second part of the dream comes true. And again, this shatters our categories, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar messes with, or God messes with Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He makes him go insane. And the reason this is under the fact that God is good and gracious is because God is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. It is a severe mercy, but God is relentless. He has set his love on Nebuchadnezzar, and he's not going to let him go. He's going to keep pursuing him until Nebuchadnezzar's heart is changed. That's how God works with the people that he loves. He pursues us. And let me just make this little important footnote. Everyone's story is different. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story. It's a, it's a grave error to say that illness, either mental or physical, is, the cause, is, is caused by sin. It's a great error to say that unless God himself says it, which is what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'm making the connection for you right here. You're going to become a beast because of your arrogance. And unless God does that, we've got to be really careful Insane that our illnesses are somehow connected to our sin. Everyone's story is different, and this is an unusual story. And so God pursues Nebuchadnezzar and makes him a beast in the field. A beast. And some think this is the psychological condition called boanthropy, where people, I mean, it occurs today, people actually think they're cows and eat grass. That could be. But God is the one who does this. God messes with Nebuchadnezzar's mind. And in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. There's a symbolism in in the fact that Nebuchadnezzar becomes a beast. Because in Psalm 73, the psalmist forgets that God's sovereign. He forgets that God's writing this good plan. That's the context of Psalm 73. And he says, when I forgot that, I was like a brute beast before you. And God is reminding Nebuchadnezzar in this drastically severe way that to deny the sovereignty of God is to be like an animal. And we, the, um, the, the, the most human thing we can do is not to assert our independence, but to assert our dependence on a sovereign God. The most human thing we can do is recognize that we need God and that he is majestically sovereign overall. As Old Testament professor Alex Kirk observes about this story, this is a fall down the hierarchy of the created order from universal provider and protector to become one of those that is in need of protection and provision, a lowly beast. It's when Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his eyes to heaven that his insanity is removed. It's when he essentially says, God, you're not a brand. You're not simply another God I add to my portfolio. I don't look down on you as one I choose and choose what parts of you I want in my life. You are God and I am not. I need you. And Nebuchadnezzar learned this the hard way through really severe mercy. And so just to bring this into our homes, into our living rooms, When God sovereignly orchestrates 
your circumstances in a way that makes you feel your dependence on him, it is God's invitation to lift your eyes to heaven and say, God, I need you. I'm dependent on you. Every time God humbles us to say, I need you, it is a gift. And it doesn't have to be these big moments of humbling like Nebuchadnezzar. Those little annoyances in the day, those little trials and troubles of our life are God gently knocking at the door and saying, you need me. You need me. You're not the sovereign I am. You need me. Here's the thing. God, God loves you so much. He will relentlessly pursue you in exactly the way you need to be pursued. I used to use this story as part of my testimony, my story. 14 years ago, my first marriage and trajectory towards ministry completely fell apart. And it was the severe but good, good mercy of God. Yes, it was my first wife's infidelity and my pride and anger and self-righteousness that were at play. That's the human responsibility part. That's the sin to lament and mourn over. But over that was a sovereign God who was very kindly humbling me, very kindly showing me that the legacy I was trying to build was not worth building and that his legacy is so much better. His story is so much better and that I'm at my happiest. I couldn't say this in the middle of it, right? You, you often can't say it to the other side. But I am at my happiest when I am not trying to build my own legacy and write my own story, but when I am submitting my heart to the sovereign king of the universe and saying, God, what can, how can I be with you in your legacy today and what you are up to and what you are doing? And whenever God sovereignly pursues us this way in the big things and in the little things, it is a gift of God's mercy. So as our hearts are recaptured with God's majesty, a response is going to flow out. And the response that we see in Daniel 4, in both Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, is a response of humble ambition. Now I'm using the word ambition intentionally because maybe the word you're expecting is submission. Like humble submission to the sovereign hand of God. But the thing is, if we really understand God's sovereignty, it's actually going to move us to action. It's actually going to move us to be ambitious in a very different way. Nebuchadnezzar was incredibly ambitious before this happened, but it was all about him. It was all about his self-glory. But when we understand the sovereignty and the majesty of God, it creates a new ambition in our heart for the glory of God, a new ambition for his name and his fame to be known. And, and we see this in a couple of ways in this chapter. First, we see a humble, ambitious life of worship. You probably caught in, in verse 1 that this is a letter that Nebuchadnezzar writes for the whole kingdom to read. Now think about that for a minute. Like posted all over the empire is this letter that this King Nebuchadnezzar has written who is known for his self-ambition. And he is willing to share this story that doesn't make him look good, but it makes God look good. He is very ambitious with his worship He's like, I want everyone to know what God has done. He doesn't care about the fallout. He doesn't care if he's looked out as a softy. 
He doesn't care that something could happen to his empire because of it. He wants everyone to know this is what God has done. God rescues us and keeps rescuing us so that our story can tell his story. We, we talk about part of our DNA is we want to tell our stories with Jesus as the hero. Part of our, our worship together here this morning as we are singing how great is our God is, is we are declaring God's worth. But, but what if more and more we were able to say, hey, let me tell you a story. It doesn't make me look good, but it does make God look good. What if we're more and more willing to tell our stories that way? I was, I was recently challenged how this could happen more in the way that we do celebration. John Tyson's book that we mentioned, Beautiful Resistance, he has this chapter on celebration, and he says, making key moments of God's goodness, marking key moments, can reframe our entire stories. And then he goes on to tell the story of someone in this congregation who celebrated her one-year spiritual birthday by sharing a list of the incredible things that Jesus did for her that year. And then he says, imagine going into the house for a party and realizing this is one of the liveliest celebrations you've ever attended. There's good food, and the people are friendly. Everyone seems excited to be there. You find the host and ask her, what are we celebrating? And the host says, we're celebrating my ninth year of being a Christian. Imagine if we had entire parties where the only reason for the party was to recount the mercy of God and his powerful work in your life. I think even our most cynical friends would be drawn to a faith like that. So whether it's singing with enthusiasm, telling your story with Jesus as the hero, or having spiritual birthday parties, ask the Spirit, how can I be ambitious ambitious in showing the worth of God? What's that look like? What's it look like to be ambitious to show how amazing God is? So ambitious worship, but secondly, when our hearts are recaptured with the majesty of God, we'll respond with a humble, ambitious life of love. Now, the word love is not in this passage, but there are actions in this passage that can only be explained by love. In verse 27, Daniel urges Nebuchadnezzar to repent, and he says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Now, that might rub against our sensibilities a little bit. Like, you expect Daniel to say, hey, repent and start worshiping God. Repent and start reading the Torah. Repent and start praying to the God of heaven. But he, he says, repent and start showing kindness to the disadvantaged, to the oppressed. And what, what Daniel says is a theme throughout the entire Bible, and especially in the teachings of Jesus, that one of the marks, the truest marks of repentance, is that you start loving the outcast and the downtrodden and the disadvantaged and especially the people that you used to hate. And Daniel confronts Nebuchadnezzar and he says, start thinking of the people whom you have exiled not as objects to conquer, as stepping stones to your legacy, but as people to sacrificially love. 
man, how t- we're, we're so tempted, even as God's people, to use people instead of love them. To be kind to our neighbors, to check off the missional box. To disciple people for what they might contribute to our ministry dreams. To give a handout to the homeless to reduce our shame and our guilt. But, but when, like, when you see how big God is, and, and when you see the building, his legacy is so much better, it frees you to love people with reckless abandon. Because like, it's not about my name anymore. It's not about my legacy. So I can freely love the people that are right in front of me. And, and while we focused, we, we've focused on this dramatic moment with Nebuchadnezzar, I, I want us to step back and think about Daniel for a minute. Like Daniel's living in the reality of God's sovereignty on a day-by-day basis. And, and think about what's happening in the story with, with Daniel. In, in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar steals Daniel and his friends and he just practically dismantles their homeland. In chapter 2, he threatens to kill Daniel and his friends with all the other magicians. In chapter 3, he throws Daniel's friends in a, in a fiery furnace. And on top of that, though we're not 100% certain, it's likely that Daniel was castrated, was made a eunuch, because that's what they did back then to keep people loyal to the king's service. And yet, despite all this, I mean, think about how Daniel's feeling. Despite all of this real trauma that Daniel has been through, he looks at Nebuchadnezzar, his enemy, his enemy, and he loves him. He didn't didn't have to say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent. He didn't have to say that. He could have said, judgment's coming. Sure glad it is. It's about time. He didn't say that. He he says, I wish this wasn't about you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Man, that's crazy incredible. I wish this wasn't about you, but it is. And he tells tells Nebuchadnezzar, he invites him to repent. Do you realize how incredible that is? That is supernatural love. Daniel was able to do that because he really believed. <laughs> he didn't just believe it. it. It gripped his heart that the story wasn't about him, that God was the one who sovereignly put him in Nebuchadnezzar's court at this time in this place. And though he longed not to be in exile, he longed to return to his homeland. And I'm sure he prayed for that. He looked at his place in Babylon as a sovereign appointment. And he just said, God, how can I serve and love the people right in front of me? You probably have heard us quote this before. Bears repeating, Dallas Willard said, the main, the main test for Christ-like character is whether one spontaneously responds to one's enemies with love. Now, that's not true because he said it. It's true because Jesus said it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Family, we, we are a people who love our enemies. That's who we are. As followers of Jesus, we are a people who love our enemies. Can you say that with me together? We are a people who love our enemies. Where has God sovereignly placed you? And and what are the enemies? And maybe it's a small e, not a big e. What, What are the people around you that are hard to love that God has sovereignly placed you in the middle of and asked you, How do I creatively, winsomely love this person who is really hard to love? To circle back to where we began, this kind of love for enemies is impossible if Jesus is a brand. It's impossible. 
But if we really believe that Jesus is the sovereign king, if we really believe the trajectory of history is that Jesus will reign and that God is working all things after the counsel of his will, that he is pursuing sinners and pursuing us as sinners in the middle of his story, if we really believe that, it frees us to love our enemies. Most importantly, Jesus never calls us to do what he hasn't done already and what he hasn't done for us. And I want to end our time this morning by looking at Philippians chapter 2, which is really today's message in the New Testament in miniature form. But I'm going to read it backwards. I'm going to start in verses 9 and 10. I'll put them on the screen. And so you can see this connection Philippians 2, 9 and 10, it says, Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the absolute and good sovereignty of God. God is moving all of history to this. And in light of that, Jesus, knowing the sovereign, unshakable plan of God, does this, backing up to verse 6. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus ambitiously and sacrificially loves and gives everything for you and me, his enemies. And now to back up to verse 5, Paul says, have the same mindset as we have a good and sovereign God who pursues us, who relentlessly pursues us, who sent his son Jesus in that pursuit of us, who gave up his life, became obedient to death so that we could be rescued and so that God could be glorified. So as we, as we move into communion, I'm give some time for response. And I'm going to throw three questions up, and I didn't know which question to use, so I'm just going to put them all up. And I'm going to invite you to pick one. Don't try to answer all of them, but I invite you to pick one. Or maybe there's a question the Spirit of God's already been asking in your heart. So, so, so look at these questions and, and ask the Spirit, which, which one do you want me to think about? Have, how have I co-opted Jesus as a brand in my life? What practice might God be calling me to engage in to be recaptured with the majesty of God? What spiritual practice might God be calling me to engage in to be recaptured with his majesty? What ambitions for worship or love do I want the spirit to cultivate in me? So let's take a few minutes and pray and ask the spirit to show you what, which one of these or maybe something completely different does he want you to respond to.